This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, how much money is enough? We ask this question today to John Sycamore. John is a business entrepreneur, author and thought leader. He was formerly CEO of a successful financial planning and funds management company, but now he's the chairman of Halftime Australia, a values-based executive coaching organisation, and he joins me now. Please welcome John Sycamore. <laughs> John, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you, Robin. Now, you work for Halftime Australia. So what exactly is that? It's not about providing oranges at football games, is it? Well, it's sort of... Pretty close because okay. it's about, imagine I get playing a game of any sport, football, or and you didn't stop at half time, you went straight into the third quarter and you didn't have time out. What yeah. would happen to performance if it wasn't going so well? Right. Well, it depends on how you're going in the first half, I suppose. That's right. So if you're not going so well. But most of us really would benefit um, by taking, pausing and reflecting and taking time out at a time maybe halfway in our life or at a time when we think maybe I do need to stop. Um, so we do that and uh, Peter Drucker, a well-known management author, uh, he actually talks about life one and life two. If we go back 117 years, people were living to age 48 and um, I wouldn't be here. There'd be a few other people here who would be lying <laughs> prostrate with me. Uh, he coined the phrase, today we have life one and life two. People are overprepared for life one, but we're underprepared for life two. So what halftime is about is stopping to pause and reflect and prepare for life two. And we're a bit counterculture because we actually say that the second half of your life can be should be better than the first. And we help people, which is counter our culture, which is actually saying... Once you turn over age 50, your best years are behind you. And we, we're actually saying the opposite. Well, they do say that the third quarter is the premiership quarter or something, isn't it? That's, that's it. The, yep. That's the best time is yep. to come. Um, now, also to clarify, John, today we're talking about money, um, but you're not providing financial advice today, are you? No, I don't have a proper authority anymore. I used to, <laughs> and then I would have happily given you some advice, okay. but now legally I'm not allowed to give advice. Okay, excellent. Anyway, now to kick off fun, bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Now today we're asking John Sycamore about how much money is enough. So John, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about Scrooge McDuck. Now, Scrooge McDuck is the fictional Disney character who is the extremely rich uncle to Donald Duck. Now, John, as someone with a background in financial planning, I mean, do you feel qualified to talk about someone like Scrooge McDuck? Well, I'll, I'll wait till I hear the question. Okay, was, was he, he was never an inspiration for you at all? Well, I think he was Scottish. So, <laughs> um, Scottish and Dutch do have a couple of things in common. Okay, uh, right. <laughs> but there's two questions, both at multiple choice. Forbes magazine generate the Forbes Fictional 15, a list of the 15 richest characters in fiction. Characters from movies, books, cartoons, television, video games, and comics. Scrooge McDuck is number one on the list with an estimated fortune of $65 billion. Now, who ranks number two on the latest Forbes fictional 15? Is it A, Tony Stark, the billionaire behind the Iron Man suit? Is it B, Smaug, the billionaire dragon from The Hobbit? Is it C, Montgomery Burns, the billionaire from The Simpsons? Or is it D, Bruce Wayne, the billionaire who is Batman? I'd say Batman. Well, you could, but unfortunately it's not right. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's actually B. It's actually Smaug, uh, the oh. billionaire dragon. Uh, the dragon's hoard of jewels, coins, and antiques from The Hobbit is estimated to be worth $53 billion. Wow. Uh, by comparison, Tony Stark was worth about $12 billion, Bruce Wayne, nine, and Montgomery Burns, only $1.5 billion. Now, whilst we're not giving financial advice today, do you commend Smaug's plunder and hoard investment style? <laughs> what could I say? <laughs> <laughs> okay, question two. Hopefully we can get you to pass here, John. What is Scrooge McDuck's favourite pastime? Is it A, diving off a springboard and swimming through his money? Is it B, going skiing on his money piles? Is it C, kissing his money? Or D, spending his money on smashed avocado at hipster cafes? I'd say A, swimming through money. And that's a great answer to give because it is the right one. Yes. <laughs> now, while he would kiss his money and go skiing on his money piles, his favourite pastime was indeed diving into his money and swimming through it. And I'm not sure if he's ever eaten smashed avocado because uh, that'd be wise because avocado is extremely toxic to ducks. So anyway, <laughs> right, John, I can see now why you have grown a successful financial planning business because you got one out of two of our smaller questions right. A big hand for John's... Now, John, despite his massive wealth, Scrooge McDuck never considered it to be enough. He believed that he had to continue to earn money by any means possible. So what do you think it is about money that makes it so captivating and enticing that we think we always need to have more? I do think at a serious level that money does give people a sense of if I have enough money, I will have freedom. Yep. And um, it'll allow me to do the things that I want to do. Yeah. What else do you think money can bring? Well, it can bring both good and bad because yeah. um, it can be used for good and uh, but can also be used for maybe not such good things. Mm -hmm. and what sort of things? Well, we've only got to look at what's happening in North Korea at the moment, uh, what money can do. Um, they've got money to spend on weapons or on destructive things. Um, and I think uh, we live in a society where we're becoming what's in it for me and we are becoming more self-centred and mm. um, if I ha and so there's a desire an insatiable appetite of having what someone else has got or um, mm. aspiring to be in a different place to where I am now. Mm. Well we'll hear about more about your story now perhaps John. Now the character Scrooge McDuck is portrayed as having worked his way up the financial ladder from humble roots um, there's some, some similarity perhaps to your story as well. Um, <laughs> Now, money's played, played an important role in your life. Maybe can you tell us about the beginnings of your business career? Well, being a migrant kid, um, my parents weren't very well off. So I saw money as a way of getting me out of some of the poverty. My dad had two jobs mm -hmm. and it was a real battle for my parents mm -hmm. to put food on the table. And uh, so... So at that point, money's actually a good thing, I suppose, isn't yeah, it? Like it's actually I saw a... it as a way of, of getting some independence and freedom. So you could probably say by age 14, I was financially independent because by that time I'd been doing a paper round every morning in Tassie up at 5.30 and uh, I'd fruit pick in the school holidays and there was a golf course over the road which I initially used to caddy at but I actually found that I was getting uh, 60 cents back in those days uh, for caddying for four hours. I found if I spent the same four hours looking for golf balls I could earn three times that much mm -hmm. like two dollars. Because you started your first golf business was a bit earlier than that wasn't it? About yeah, 11 about years. 11, yeah. You were... But I actually found that I could even make more money if I cut out the middleman and not sell to the pro and direct to the golf. Now even though this was illegal. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Um, that was uh, probably a slight integrity challenge for me, but okay. I managed to manage that and sell direct to the golfers by hiding under a bridge where there was a, <laughs> a river and they would lose golf balls and... And I found I made another fifty percent. I made three dollars by selling it direct to the to desperate, the golfers. Desperate yeah. golfers. You so that was my first it. business. Yeah. Right. Wow. Now I must admit. So I'm financially independent at fourteen, but my parents were great. I had free board, so I. I <laughs> <laughs> so what drove you then to secure these jobs at fourteen? Well, I actually saw that money um, was a way to get freedom and to do the things in life that I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It, it was clearly, it's the exchange of goods and services. With money, I could buy the things I wanted. So at a very simplistic level, my parents didn't have money to buy me anything, basically, except food on the table. So to have a pair of denim jeans and to buy a secondhand bike and a Swiss watch, they were my first three items that I aspired to buy when I was uh, 14. And you yeah. got them? I got them. Yeah. Wow. What did it feel like when you wore them? Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and also there was another thing that my mum loved. Uh, she was uh, sewing, so she used to make Dutch clothes for me, which was rather embarrassing as a boy wearing homemade clothes. So I decided I didn't want to do that. So I used to either inadvertently lose them and I'd be able to buy some of my own clothes. And, <laughs> and also my mum loved making um, sandwiches for my lunch, like all good mums, but I didn't particularly like eating them because they were like peanut butter or soggy tomato sandwiches. So by having money, I could go to the school canteen and buy a beautiful hot pie. So mm. that was what money did Just for The me. hot pie was a smashed avocado of that time, I suppose, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so then this began, obviously began your business career. So then what happened after that? Well, I, so I probably today they would say I had ADD, but back in those days they just said you had very poor concentration and you didn't behave in class. But uh, my dad said, John, you can go to university, but you've got to give up playing sports. So the two things I'd love were business and sport. So it was an easy decision. I was a uni dropout. I didn't even get there. Um, so I went after success and a business career. And by age 23, I was running my own business. Yep. And what happened after that? You continued to be more successful? Well, I, I found um, I moved from Tassie to Melbourne and uh, cold calling. I'd learnt on the golf course that so I didn't have too many fears doing that. And so <laughs> I was selling insurance and superannuation. And at age 26, um, I would sell insurance and superannuation to people where where other agents weren't prepared to go, like Russell Street Police Headquarters and nursing um, mental institutions. And I found I made more sales than all the people in my area. So I became the top salesman out of 300 salespeople, just being prepared to do the things that other salespeople weren't prepared to do. Yeah, wow. And then you, the business grew and business became more grew. successful? Well, I got a very, uh, yeah, the adrenaline rush about success. I, I, I think I, I really went after the whole success thing pretty hard and probably yep. say by the age of 40, I was successful in the sense that I was CEO of my own company. Um, I had about 50 staff and um, had a beautiful architect home overlooking a beach and a golf course and a beach house, had the BM, four kids mm-hmm. at private school, no grey hair. You weren't collecting golf balls at that stage? No. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, so by a lot of definitions, you could say that um, I was successful at about 40. Right, yeah. and what role did spirituality play at this particular point in your life? Well, I grew up in a very conservative church environment and uh, saw the place for church, but I never felt I quite fitted in because I wasn't a muso and I wasn't a Sunday school teacher. And I'm probably a bit of an introvert, wasn't an extrovert in a sense. So uh, I ticked the box and went along and believed in God, but I didn't really. I sort of kept that separate to my business life and 
that was probably uh, was a good place to take my wife and kids right. and uh, on the journey and uh, saw God had a place and a role in in my life. But but it wasn't really a central role. Or, or it wasn't the the central role right, that it yeah. is today. Yeah. Now in your early forties, you're successful, but then cracks began to appear. Uh, what was happening at that time? I was pretty obsessed about becoming successful and was very determined. And as a, to achieve the goals that I set, uh, I used to work 80, 90 hours a week. Um, I was vulnerable with migraine headaches, so I found I used to come home a couple of nights a week with a migraine, and sometimes I was physically ill, and I'd go straight to bed and not eat with the family. So that was a pretty negative experience. Also, I'd borrowed a fair bit of money to have the dream house and own the most shares in the business and uh, have a holiday home and have the kids at private schools. And so that also was quite stressful, just uh, the lifestyle I'd had. And then we had the recession we had to have and the business was losing 30K a month. And I remember on paper at one stage there, I thought oh, I'm actually bankrupt. Uh, if I sold everything, I'd be struggling to pay the bills that I've and the, the debts. And I had two credit cards and I had a second mortgage. And But on the outside, I looked very successful. Right. But, but on the inside, the inside there, was, there, there were cracks. cracks appearing. And then you had a car accident in 1993. Yeah. How did that change your life? The most lucrative part of, I don't know if any of you here come from Tassie, but Tassie has uh, two main centres, three main population centres, one Hobart, one Launceston, one Burnie. I used to live in Hobart and drive to Launceston every week on a Friday. It was about two and a half hours drive, so I used to do it between six o'clock and eight in the morning. And I used to do it every Friday, and I don't know, I used to sometimes think, I don't remember driving through this town because I was in a trance and just daydreaming because you'd do that route every time. Then one week, they, um, they'd actually, I came around a corner, a slow, a slow bend at probably 100 k's, and I'm heading straight for a truck, and I'm thinking, my life's over. And somehow I bounced off the side of the truck, I'd, I'd spun the steering wheel, shut my eyes, and bounced off the side of this truck, and I'm thinking, wow, how come I'm alive? I must have a few guardian angels looking after me because I should be dead and looked, got out my car and there were scratches all along it, but somehow miraculously I, I hadn't been hurt and I, I, that really was a massive wake-up call for me and mm -hmm. it was, and immediately I thought this is symptomatic of my life of being out of control. I'm a workaholic, my relationship with my kids and wife and, and we're, I'd been neglectful there, my mm -hmm. health wasn't good, I had a lot of debt and I thought I'm really heading for a collision, mm -hmm. this is like... I've just had a messy, and I thought I've got to make some change. Mm. Yeah. And so what was your relationship like with your wife? Well, the reality was um, we had the really in love, got married young and had a great relationship. But as we had children and mortgage and debt and pressure of life, we sort of grew apart and um, I wasn't home a lot because of work. And one day she said to me, John, you're not the fun guy I married. You're a workaholic and uh, this has been going on too long. I can't cope with this anymore. I want a divorce. Unless, unless you cha immediately change. But as a guy, I'm thinking, what's wrong with this lady? Because, you know, she's got a beautiful house and there's food on the table. The kids all go to private school. I do an annual holiday, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, obviously I had a blind spot and um, yeah, my self-awareness relationally was pretty poor. And I've really realized that I wasn't doing too well. What changed? Well, not long after that, I, um, so I started searching and praying and finding how, what because I'm competitive and a type A person I, I didn't want to quit I just thought if I keep chipping away it'll sort itself out but it didn't and then one day I heard a talk that really changed my life because um, this bikey came and did a talk in the local little church we went to and he said um, John 
if I could find 100 business people to give me a million dollars each, we could change this nation. And my heart leapt. I thought, I'm one of those. This is a dream that I had. When I was 14, working on the, walking on the golf course, looking for golf balls, I remember one day I had this epiphany or a spiritual experience, I now look back on it, where I had this conversation in my head about why am I so blessed? Why have I got money as much as I need? I've got a happy home life. I go to a private school, live in a free country, and so many people haven't got what I've got. What have I done to deserve that? So when I turn age 50 and I've paid off my loans and debts and house and kids married, kids grown up, I'm going to spend the rest of my life helping others. Um, the problem was that I forgot about that from age 14 to 40. For 26 years, that dream that I, that conversation I had, I got caught up in the ambition of money and success and worries of life and he ignited a dream that I'd had inside of me for 26 years. So I had this peace and joy that was starting to come as he said that mm. um, and thought, wow, that's really what I want to do. Mm. But how am I going to do it? So how did you do it? Well, what happened after that, which is a bit eerie, I heard an pretty well an audible voice saying, John, I did not create you for you to be successful. I created you to help others succeed. And if you do that, you'll be truly successful. And that was so clear, unmistaken, the lights went on, and that was a really supernatural head heart experience. Now, some people say hearing voices in your head is a sign of madness. So yeah. what, what, what did you make of this? The main thing, I thought, how stupid that I've been, um, you know, trying to be the self-made man and try and um, make money. And I thought, if I make lots of money and I'm really successful, then I'm in a position, I'm strong, I can help others. But this is where I had that. Um, spiritual thing um, and I had a peace and joy I'd never felt when I connected the, uh, those two things and all of a sudden my mind was flooded with things that I had back to front in my life i.e. I'd been, my mum was a superwoman, migrant woman she ran her own business, my dad had two jobs, I grew up in an environment that was very task orientated, very success driven, a lot of it survival and I realised that um, I was attracted to my wife because she was intelligent, good-looking, and um, but she was relational. And once we got married, I was trying to change her. I just thought all women were a little bit the same. <laughs> Big mistake. Um, I, th I was trying to inadvertently change her to suit my success. And yeah. so one of the things that I was really convicted on was to help her be who God created her to be. I'd been asked to get involved in the community, and I'd often said no. And I thought, I've, I've got to just start saying yes, and I've got to take risks, I've got to start. And the Bible actually became alive to me uh, for the first time, probably, because previously that I loved some of the stories, but it was more a historical book. And then I started reading it, and things jumped out at me, and actually realised it was God's business plan to man, in a sense. It's how to have relationships, how to look after money, how to plan your future, what your purpose is. And so I... That was uh, all sort of came together and, um, yeah. So really, the, at that point, you became spiritually alive, so to speak. Yep. Yeah, and that transformed Absolutely. your life. So how is your life different then? Well, I'd, I'd probably say um, at age 23, I did the church thing and said, yes, I'll become a Christian. But inadvertently, I surrendered 50% of my life and said, God, I'll trust you on this 50%. But on this 50%, I'm going to do it my way. And that didn't work. And I've read somewhere in the Bible it says God is a jealous God and we've got to have the faith of a child. So I realised, well, my way's not working. So I thought I'll just 100% trust God. And that was one of the, thing, the 13 things I wrote down that I was prepared. So when I got home, 
I put those 13 things in my drawer and locked it and share it with my wife because I had a habit of promising things and maybe not delivering. Mm-hmm. And, yep. Right, yeah. And then how did your attitude to money change as a result of an encounter with God? Yeah, well, that's a really good question because... Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's what we're here for. <laughs> I, I used to carry a little bit of guilt when I made a lot of money. Um, there was something about it. I think, you know, have I done the right thing by the client? Have I... And it's, for me, I'm being selfish. But when I got this greater vision and purpose for my life that I, was, I would start helping others straight away at 40 rather than waiting till 50, I actually saw that I became a trustee of my time and my skill and my money. So when I was making money, it was because I was going to help it to help others rather than having... And so I actually sold the dream house and lived in a cheaper house and I made changes in my life so that I was in a position to help others. Mm. So, so money became then a tool, a useful to be used for good rather than using it only for myself. Mm. Now, John, the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible says in chapter 5, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Now, someone who's worked in funds management and financial planning, um, wouldn't you have done yourself out of a job? Uh, if you share this perspective with your clients? I found as a financial planner, the people who respected money, um, they could live on much less and they used it um, in a positive sense. Who'd actually sit down and say, we could cut out these expenses and these things. We don't really need them because money doesn't really make us happy. That actually worked out. So money then becomes a very useful and mm. very valuable thing. Respecting it, I think, is the mm. key. And understanding where it fits. The unhappiest clients were the ones with the most money, clearly. And it was depressing, actually. They actually worry and they get angry. They come in and uh, they go crook at me as the advisor and blame me for the markets. And I, I'm sort of thinking, actually, if I was that good that I control the markets, I wouldn't need any clients. I just go <laughs> use my money to make money. I haven't got it worked out. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, so in many ways, it didn't actually bring freedom that they were thinking that it could actually bring. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when asked how much money is enough, John D. Rockefeller responded by saying, just a little bit more. So how does the book of Ecclesiastes critique Rockefeller's answer? Well, I think it, uh, it's pretty scathing um, in um, telling, the, um, telling the truth about how money um, causes a lot of harm and a lot of good uh, and, and too often it's used not for good and um, how destructive that is and how empty it is and how damaging it is. So, But it also, I think, towards the end of chapter in, in Ecclesiastes, it, it just talks about if you've got good health, and you've got wealth, um, how powerful that is if you use it wisely. Mm. Well, the next part of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I wonder if it's a financial planner's worst nightmare, because the author says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. So how do you react to the idea that hoarded wealth can cause harm or be lost? If I had my filing cabinet here, I could pull out some files and read out some case histories, but because of confidentiality, yeah, okay, I wouldn't would. have been able to <laughs> do that anyway. I might get... I can speak firsthand at that, um, even some of my own experiences with money and with clients. Um, I think that that's a really prophetic book and it's no more relevant... It's really relevant in today's society because there's constant schemes about getting rich and uh, it doesn't matter if it's... 
I, I stand at the news agent and watch people who don't seem to have a lot of money and they hand over $50 notes and the odds of winning Tats Lotto, I think, are one in 11 million and people hand their money over. Mm. Then if you go and Google on people who've won a lot of money and what's actually happened to their lives, there's story after story of how that's actually destroyed them. Mm. So mm. somehow, though, we have this illusion that money's going to solve all problems and actually I'm a great believer in having a clear purpose for your life and a vision for your life and that's actually what we do at half time yeah. is money's never the problem I used to have it with our financial planners when we had 160 financial planners around Australia in 65 offices we'd sit down on a whiteboard and do some strategic planning and initially they'd always say oh if I had more time and money I could be able to do all these things and I found really if you sat down with them and helped them develop a vision, money tends to follow good vision and it's a bad thing to get out of bed to purely want to go and earn money. It's, if you've got a vision to do something worthwhile with your life, with a product, or sure you need some fair compensation. I think we look for fairness with money. That's mm. the... Mm. Now the author of the book here says that uh, wealth and the ability to enjoy, the, enjoy them is a gift from God. So how is recognising that true in your life? At age 40, I was sort of on paper bankrupt. Age 50, um, God blessed, I cut my house back from 80 to 50. Yeah, and your business and went backwards, didn't it? No, it didn't. Um, this is the, the um, logic can be a dangerous thing. The business grew um, by 40% per annum the next 10 years to the point where we were able to sell it to Challenger, a listed company which Packers had 25% in at the time. So at age 49, um, my dream at 14 when I was walking on that golf course was at 50 I'd be able to spend the rest of my life helping others and God actually brought that about. So at age 49, I sold the business and I was financially independent and so I've been able since then to spend my life coaching and mentoring business people and uh, we're often misunderstood and it's quite lonely in a leadership sort of role to help people transition to giving back. So either giving your time or your skill or some of your money. Mm. Mm. So John, how much money is enough? Well, that's a really good question, isn't it? <laughs> and. Um, it depends, you know, you can answer that a, a, a lot of different ways in um, third world, um, in our culture. I think in our culture here, we can often get by on a lot less than we think um, we need to have. And we are now um, saying that these are things that I have to have, but we really we don't. So I, I believe it's, it's, it's something that we just need to get a balance. And, and uh, you know, as a practicing Christian, I just think that we need to have faith and not have all the ducks lined up and try and control things. And I think we only really need enough for each day. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we need faith and take risks. And God's perspective on money? I think God's perspective of money is that it's a blessing and he wants to give it to us. Um, but he wants us to get it in the right way with integrity. And um, I think he's uh, created blessings in abundance so I just see it's a matter of investing your life into doing what we're really here for, which is a greater purpose. Mm. Um, Let me leave you with the Bible's reflections on the bigger question, how much money is enough? Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, John Sikama. Thanks for listening to Bigger Questions. 
To help you continue exploring the bigger questions, we've developed a reading guide to accompany this episode called Chasing Life. The guide has further questions, stories and reflections to help you understand the book of Ecclesiastes. To get your own copy or to find out more, check out the Bigger Questions website or contact your local City Bible Forum office. If you've enjoyed the show, why not support it on Patreon? You can help us keep asking bigger questions for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us next time.